What do you see when you look into the face of your neighbor? Do you see a stranger? A friend? A foreigner? Or a refugee? Do you see someone to avoid? Someone to hide from? Do you see someone to hate or someone to love? Can you see yourself in their face? Do you see the face of Jesus? Dinner with Jesus. Uh, in Luke's gospel, as I've mentioned in the past, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. The man likes to eat. But it's not just about getting nourishment. And it's not just about having a party. Sometimes we mistake that, that Jesus was actually a glutton and a wine-bibber. He wasn't. That was the accusation against him. But it was actually during these meals that Jesus reveals something about himself. And that's what we're meant to pay attention to. And so that's what we see in Luke. So what have we learned so far? Quick recap. And if you haven't been here, you can go back. We've got them all on YouTube. You can watch that at your own pace or speed it up like 1.5 or something like that. So what have we learned about Jesus so far? Well, we saw Jesus go to the house of a tax collector. His name was Levi or Matthew, right? And what we learned at the table of Matthew, when he gathers all his buddies together to celebrate Jesus, we learned that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's a startling acknowledgement. Um, but he's a friend of sinners, <clears throat> not in the sense of he's okay with their sin, or that he's just a buddy-buddy, and he's hanging out, and he's fine with whatever they do. He's the best kind of friend, the friend that actually holds us accountable. And he's a friend of sinners that calls sinners to repentance. And so as he gathers around the table with these uh, men, presumably mostly men, uh, that were tax collectors and maybe gamblers and maybe a few other sorts that thought they were outside of God's grace, he invites them to repent, to have a change of mind about God and to return home. Because that's the definition of repentance, to have a change of mind and to return home. And so that's what Jesus is doing. So we learned that. Jesus is a friend to sinners. Then we went to the house of a Pharisee named, anybody remember? Simon. Simon the Pharisee. Lots of Simons. Simon the Pharisee. Jesus was there. Simon forgot to greet him in an appropriate way. Forgot to wash his feet. Forgot to anoint his, his head with oil. Forgot to give him a kiss. Uh, all the things you're supposed to do. But someone else came into that room. Someone else came into that table that was uninvited. And who was that? We don't know her name, but it was a woman who brought a very expensive jar of perfume, poured it on the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And what we learn about Jesus is this, that Jesus is worthy of worship. This is a radical statement, and we're so used to it, perhaps, that we don't realize it. 
Uh, but when we turn to the Acts of the Apostles, and some of the great apostles are going out and they're doing good works and amazing miracles are happening, uh, some of the people come up to the feet of the apostles and they want to bow down and worship the apostles. And what do they do? They say, no, no, get, get up, get off your knees, get off, off the ground, get on your feet. We're just men. Do you notice that Jesus never does that? When people bow down to the feet of Jesus, he receives it. He accepts it because he is God in the flesh. And this is a, a revolutionary thing that Jesus accepts and is worthy of our worship. And this woman that's unnamed uh, reveals that to us. Okay, a third meal. This was the picnic with the multitude. And we talked about a number of different things, and I want to introduce one that we didn't talk about, and it's this, that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Now, how do we get to that from the, you remember the meal, there's, there's fish and there's bread, and uh, in some accounts, a small boy brings it, and they share his lunch, and there's 12 baskets remaining. How does this announce that Jesus is greater than the prophets? Well, in Luke's account of the feeding of the multitude, right before the feeding, Herod is asking a question. Who is Jesus? Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Or is this another prophet? And then there's the feeding of the 5,000. And then right after that, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's an interesting sandwich, speaking of dinner with Jesus. Now, Luke and the gospel writers do this a lot. They kind of have a sandwich. And at both ends of the sandwich, there's questions about the identity of Jesus, and then there's a story in the middle. What's the connection? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, you find a story about a prophet named Elisha. And the story has to do with a time of famine. Listen carefully to how the story plays out and keep in mind the feeding of the 5,000. <clears throat> a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. And Elisha said, you give the people something to eat. Do you remember that phrase? Remember that phrase in the feeding of the 5,000 when the disciples brought the loaves and the fish, and they're like, this is all we got. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. That's the words that he's quoting, basically, from Elisha. Listen to what the servants of Elisha say. How can I set this before a hundred men? Same thing that they're asking in the feeding of 5,000. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever drawn that parallel before between the feeding of the 5,000, and there was more than 5,000 people there, and the feeding of the 100 in Elisha. But here is the point I want to draw. Elisha took 20 loaves and fed 100 men. Good for him. Jesus took a few loaves and fish and fed 5,000 men and women and children beyond and then there's 12 baskets left over. The clear point is this. Elijah was great. Jesus is way better. <laughs> Jesus is greater than the prophets. And this is a really important point that we need to hold on to. Because I think even as we work out our faith today, we often turn to the prophets. We often turn to the old covenant, the old witness, 
in order to boost our views. And we have to be careful with that because the final word is Jesus. Greater, someone greater than the prophets is here. The final word of God, which is Jesus. So we learn in a roundabout way from the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus is greater than even the great prophet Elisha. Okay, one last thing before we get to our story today. Um, the last uh, house we visited was the house of who? Anybody remember? Martha, right? Martha and her sister, Mary. And the simple point that we draw from this is that Jesus is our first and best choice. Jesus is our first choice. There's lots of things that demand our attention. Lots of good things that we need to give attention to in our lives. But the priority goes to Jesus. And Mary has chosen the better part. That better part is sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. And this is simply because Jesus holds the key to eternal life. A quality of life now and a quantity of life beyond the grave. And so Jesus takes priority. So these are the things we're learning. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's worthy of worship. He's greater than the prophets. And he's our first and best choice. And we learn all that by sitting at the table and having dinner with him. So what do we learn today? Well, Jesus is once again at the home of a Pharisee. And this is important because I think sometimes we get uh, kind of the idea in our mind that Jesus is always hanging out with the riffraff. Well, the Pharisees are a different kind of riffraff, <laughs> and they're just kind of cleaned up, and they look nice. Uh, but as we find out, maybe not, is not at all as it appears. I'll take a drink of water. I'll say it better next time. And so today, he's at the home of a Pharisee, and what we find out is as Jesus approaches the time of his death, as he approaches the time of the, of the cross, the opposition to Jesus intensifies. And what does Jesus do about it? He makes it worse. He actually pushes back and he starts pressing buttons and he starts stirring up people. And I think that's what we're find happening here. Jesus actually is escalating the conflict at the table. He could have totally reduced the conflict by not saying anything. But did you hear the language that Jesus was using? It doesn't come out as strong in the NLT, but maybe in some of your versions you read, Woe to the Pharisees, woe, right? This warning shot that Jesus is firing, this watch out, Pharisees. And he does this at the dinner table. Have you ever been at a, a dinner table and you're ready for a nice meal and someone brings up politics? Someone says Trump and then it's, it's like go time. And you're like, what? Honestly, can we just eat? Just put the fork in your mouth and eat. And, and it's kind of like that, the intensity of that at the table I could only imagine, and we find that out later on when the poor teachers of the law, they're like, Jesus, wow, you're making us super uncomfortable. And what does Jesus do? He turns on them. He's like, you should be uncomfortable. And he starts laying into them. And so this would be a very, very intense time as he gives these warning shots to the Pharisees, this group of people who were the religious leaders and held power in the time. Keep that in mind. Well, what was the crisis? What's the crisis that sparked the controversy at the table? It wasn't Trump this time. Uh, what was it this time? It was because Jesus didn't wash his hands. How bizarre, right? Jesus didn't wash his hands. 
And uh, this wasn't like when we tell our kids, right, go wash your hands before you come to the table, and we inspect them to see if they wash their hands. This is something more than that. There's a, a document called um, Yadayim, which I'm sure you all have on your bookcases at home. And in chapter 2, verse 3, it explains the rules for hand washing. And I'm going, you, you thought hand washing during COVID was bad. Um, wait till you hear, these are the rules before you were to sit down at the house of a Pharisee. <clears throat> the hands are susceptible to ceremonial uncleanness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone, and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. And if he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubs it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. Have you got it? Jesus says, forget that, let's eat. It's interesting, the Pharisees, you get the tone, right? They're so caught up in this ritual. And that's what Jesus, that prompts Jesus to call attention to where they're at. So intentionally, Jesus doesn't wash his hands. And I think he does so in order to make a point. Well, what was his point? The point is this. The Pharisees focused on the religious, religious show but God focuses on the heart. It's not even just the outward appearance because there's outward acts that the Pharisees were meant to do and they weren't doing that even. But they loved the religious show. But God focuses on the heart. The image that Jesus brings to the table is, is a great one, isn't it? Did you catch it? It's the dirty cup, right? If you have a cup you don't just clean the outside and leave the inside so it builds up. You know that coffee stain, if you've got a coffee cup, and you leave it alone, it forms, forms that kind of scum on the bottom, and then it kind of infiltrates the sides. Maybe you haven't left a coffee cup long enough uh, to find out that that happens. Um, but it's gross. And so you don't just clean the outside of the cup, you clean the inside. I remember when I was growing up, uh, my dad worked at a mine uh, near Peachland, B.C., and one of the things I love to watch is uh, my dad or my mom preparing his lunch as he would go on to day shift. And so he'd have this giant lunch bucket, classic sort of clamshell, full of food. And then he would have what? A thermos right? The big Stanley thermos. And he would fill it with the best coffee known to man, Maxwell House Instant. <laughs> I don't know why that was his choice. <clears throat> so mom would mix up the Maxwell house with cream and sugar and uh, send dad away. When dad came back, that thermos was filthy. It had been rolling around the truck. He had opened it with his hands. But it didn't matter so much that it was beat up and kind of dirty on the outside. It was the inside of the cup, right? That's what mattered. It had to hold the precious gold of Maxwell house. Good to the last drop or whatever the saying was. The inside of the cup matters, and Jesus brings this image to the Pharisees and says, you guys are focusing on cleaning the outside, and you've forgotten all about the important part, which is the inside. It's the heart that matters. So in what ways were the Pharisees cleaning the outside but not the inside? And this is where I think it's instructive for us, because we're not dissimilar to the Pharisees. 
Actually, Jesus agreed with a lot of the Pharisees. He agreed with the Pharisees more than the other sect, which was the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducee. You get it? Okay, you'll think about it later. But the Pharisees did. And so actually, Jesus sides with the Pharisees a lot more. And he even praises them sometimes. Um, and so we have to be careful that we don't think the Pharisees are something other than who we are as well as religious people and sometimes religious leaders. So this warning, these warning shots are for us. Here are the ways in which the Pharisees were cleaning the outside, but not the inside. First of all, they fixated on the rules and forgot the big picture. Did you hear it in the, in the text? They were all about tithing, and Jesus picks the most ridiculous thing that they tithe, their herb garden. Imagine this little itty-bitty herb garden, and they're cutting just enough herbs to measure it out and to mark off on their checklist, yes, donated one-tenth of my herbs, and they would have measured it out, and it would be a big deal, and they would feel proud that they have donated their herbs. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. You're so focused on the minutiae, you're so focused on the rules, you're focused on the checklist that you've forgotten the big picture. What is that? They've forgotten justice and the love of God. We can fall into that trap too, you know. We can focus on the checklist. Have you been to church? Yes. Read your Bible? One verse. Have you tithed? You know, two dollars. And if we check it all the way down and we feel good about ourselves, have you done justice and have you loved God? Didn't quite get to it. Because I was so busy with everything else. And Jesus says it's so often that we fall into this trap of so fixating on the rules that we forget this big picture, seek justice and love God. That's one way that they cleaned the outside but not the inside. Here's a second way. They craved attention and forgot to glorify God. They loved attention. They loved the special seats. They loved the special greetings that they got because people recognized them. They loved the status, the honor. When I was pastoring in, uh, in Nelson, B.C. at First Baptist Church, it was an old uh, United Church building, actually, that we had taken over. And uh, on the, on the uh, raised platform, there were these massive chairs. Anybody remember seeing massive chairs on the platform when you were growing up in a church, perhaps? And it was ridiculous. It was like the king's throne. This chair, you could have sat three people across, three people of my size across, in the chair, sitting there. I never sat in the chair, and thankfully, the people of First Baptist Nelson never asked me to. But it was ridiculous seeing this massive chair on the, uh, on the raised platform. And, but the Pharisees would have loved that. They would have loved attention-seeking. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that as well. Even when we're doing good, even when we're doing our good works, what does the Bible say? Do your good works in such a way that they glorify your Father in heaven. The Pharisees forgot that part. They took all the praise to themselves. And that way, they cleaned the outside but not the inside. Here's a third way. And this is a little bit more uh, cryptic in the passage. They corrupted others, and the others didn't even know. They corrupted others, and the others didn't know. Um, Jesus says, you're like hidden graves that people are walking over. And in that time, and even today, I find it difficult to walk over. Anybody else find that? If you're walking through a graveyard, you're like, oh, where, where do I go? <laughs> Trying to show respect, generally. And sometimes it's hard with today's graveyards the way it's set out. But for the, the Jewish people of the time, 
and even today, really, walking over a grave would have defiled you, would have made you ceremonial unclean. You can't touch a dead body, but you shouldn't come in proximity to one. And what Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees, they're like a minefield in a graveyard. People just by associating with them, because the Pharisees are so spiritually dead inside, they are actually defiling the people around them. People don't even know it. They're leading them astray. They're giving them false teaching. They're so spiritually dead that they are killing others. They're defiling them. So that's why they are not cleaning the inside, and they're just focused on the outside. Here's a fourth way. And this is when Jesus turns his attention to the, uh, the keepers of the law, the teachers of the law. He says, you are demanding too much. Not only are you demanding too much, uh, you are placing burdens on others, and you're not willing to lift a finger to help them. I understand that sometimes with one another, we hold each other to account. But if we hold one another to account in such a way that we overburden another person and we're not willing to lift a finger to help, then we fall into the trap of the Pharisee. We're doing it for show. We're doing it for, I don't know, some kind of religious obligation. And so we have to be careful in all these things. Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus sums up his assessment of the Pharisees like this. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have a place of authority. It's recognized. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That's the danger, isn't it? That's the danger of everyone that stands in this pulpit, everyone that uh, teaches at a small group, you know, is the danger of not practicing what we preach. And that's what the Pharisees have fallen into in this time. They look all right on the outside, but in their hearts, there's something not right, and they're not right with God. And God is after the transformation of our hearts that leads to justice and the love of God. So, did Jesus hate the Pharisees? I mean, some of these words are pretty harsh, right? He didn't hold back. Uh, he, he just told it as it was, and he went after them. And you can read, especially in Matthew's gospel, it's even more explicit. Jesus just goes one after the other. He does not hold back. Does Jesus hate the Pharisees? Well, here's how a 19th century minister, his name was Frederick Robertson. This is how he put it. This is what he taught his congregation. I will tell you what to hate. That's, you know, you're off to a bad start when a preacher says that. I will tell you what to hate. Hate hypocrisy, hate Phariseeism. Hate them as Christ hated them with a deep, living, godlike hatred. I want to say that Freddie was wrong. <laughs> Freddie was wrong. And, but we, we kind of sense that sometimes that Jesus had this thing against the Pharisees that somehow he maybe even hated them with a godlike hatred. There's no such thing. Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees, nor does he condemn them in this, this, in this exchange that he has at the table. He's not condemning them. This is a watch-out list. This is actually the way that Jesus is calling these particular sinners to repentance. This is the way that he's holding them accountable. But he wants them to have a change of mind, a change of heart, and to return home. In fact, many of the Pharisees became believers in Jesus. 
We find it even in Acts chapter 15. Even though in Acts chapter 15, they're still causing trouble, but they were believers in Jesus. In fact, some of our favorite Bible characters were Pharisees. You've heard of Nicodemus, right? Maybe you've heard of Joseph of Arimathea. Both were Pharisees. What do those two men do? When all the disciples fled, what do these Pharisees do? They went and retrieved the body of Jesus after he was killed on the cross. And they placed them, the body of Jesus, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? They, they rented it out for a few days. Jesus didn't need it for very long. Um, but that's what they did. So there's bravery and courage and real faith in the Pharisees. And there's other Pharisees that are named, but probably the most famous Pharisee of all was who? The Apostle Paul. And so as we think of the Pharisees and we think of the trouble they got themselves into and how sometimes they were hypocritical, there's hope. There's incredible hope as Jesus calls us all to repentance, to have a change of mind and return home. And so as we look through this time of Jesus at the table, what we discover is this, that there's hope for greedy tax collectors like Levi. There's hope for women who find themselves marginalized in a man's world like Mary and Martha. And there's hope for hypocritical Pharisees who love to put on a religious show, but their hearts are far from God. There's hope. Jesus loves them all. How is there hope? Because while we humans look to the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you love us. In every situation, we know that you don't turn away from us. And sometimes you sit at our table and you call us to account. You grab our attention. You fire the warning shots. But we know even then it's for our good and so that we might repent and return to you. Father, help us to do that so that your word might go from this place and from our lives with credibility, with authority, and might invite others to come to know you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.